Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in verse number 18, right where we left off last week. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Actually, let's start reading in verse 16, just so we kind of flow into it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, Full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, even when it's hard. And I pray today that you'll guide us and direct us. Lord, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, and I pray today that you'll help me to preach this the way you want it preached. That you'll fill me with your spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I ask for his help today. Lord, this is a hard passage, and I pray that it would not offend except where you want it to. Uh, The offense of the cross, Lord, we don't apologize for that. And so I pray, Lord... Uh, that would that would be clear, but I pray also, Lord, I wouldn't say anything that would needlessly offend. Help us today to honestly and accurately look at this passage. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can already determine from what we've read and how I've prayed and some of the hints I've already dropped, this is not going to be easy listening today. This is going to be more like heavy metal today. This is This is serious stuff. As a matter of fact, every time that I've thought in the past about preaching through Romans, I knew these parts were there. And so that's one of the reasons that I've always held back. Paul is presenting the gospel in his letter to the Romans. He's sharing the good news. But before he can share the good news, he has to start with the bad news. And here's the bad news. 
It's in our text. Verse number 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God. So let's consider two questions this morning. Let us ask ourselves this question first of all. Is God angry? Is God angry? And number two, if he's angry, why is God angry? So let's look at that first one. Is God angry? And obviously, there's a pretty easy answer to this question. The psalmist says in Psalm chapter 7, or verse number 11, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Is God angry? The psalmist said he is. And Paul clearly says it in our text that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so the answer would seem to be yes, would it not? God is angry. And it is a theme that we see throughout the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul says the same thing in Colossians chapter 3, because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Is God angry? It would seem the answer is yes. Arthur W. Pink in his book, The Attributes of God, says this. He said, a study of the concordance will show that there are more references in Scripture to the anger, fury, and wrath of God than there are to his love and tenderness. I never thought of that before. More references to his anger, his fury, and his wrath than to his love and to his tenderness. James Montgomery Boyce says in the Old Testament, more than 20 words are used to refer to God's wrath. There are nearly 600 important passages on the subject. These are not isolated or unrelated passages as if they had been added to the Old Testament at some later date by a particularly gloomy redactor. They are basic and are integrated with the most important themes and events of Scripture. And so the answer to our first question, is God angry, is clearly yes. We may not like to think of that, but it is, as we have seen, as clearly attested in Scripture as any other truth that we could talk about this morning. And so Paul so very clearly begins, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Is God angry? Yes. Question number two, why is God angry? Why is God angry? Well, the apostle gave three primary reasons here. You might see a couple others that jump out at you, but there's three primary reasons that I think we could look at. First of all, he says in verse number 18 that God is angry because his truth is suppressed. His truth is suppressed. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, I think as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see that we could interpret it really a couple of different ways. I I think that it's possible that these passages describe mankind as a whole. I think we could interpret all of human history by Applying this. But I think also it applies to each of us individually and describes us individually. The same truths apply both ways. God is angry because his truth is suppressed. From the very first suppression of the truth that took place in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve listened to Satan hiss his question, Yea, hath God said. And they chose his truth over God's truth. Mankind has been suppressing the truth. To suppress the truth simply means to hold it back. To have knowledge of it, but to push it aside. Isn't that what they did? Satan said, yea, hath God said. He gave an alternate explanation, and they chose his rather than God's. And how many times do we do exactly the same thing? In our lives, oftentimes, we would prefer some other truth over the truth of God. It's suppressing his truth. And here Paul says that the wrath of God 
is revealed against such. He's angry because his truth is suppressed. He says another reason. He's angry because his revelation is ignored. Verses 19 and 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. I ask the elders... I sometimes do this. I ask the elders to comment on this passage this week. I just was interested to see what thoughts jumped out at them, and almost every one of them fixated on these two verses. Uh, these are hard verses in our Bible. I've been having conversations with uh, Alex, and he and I have been talking about these verses as well. These are hard verses in our Bible. You know what? These are the verses that we go to when somebody asks the famous question, what about the heathen? What about the people in foreign lands who have never heard? What about the people who have never had a Bible translated into their language? And, of course, here's where we go. We go right here to Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Will people like that die and go to hell? And they're valid questions, aren't they? They play on our minds, especially when we're young in the faith and we're trying to gain a better understanding of Scripture. See, we know that God is just. We know that because the Bible tells us he is. We know that God is love. We understand that from Scripture. We know He's holy and He's right and He's true and He's good. How would He send someone from a foreign land who's never heard the Bible to hell? Who's never had an opportunity to sit in a service of Friendship Bible Church? Who's never had the Bible translated into their own language? Who's never heard an actual presentation of the gospel? How would He ever do that? Does God's wrath extend to such people? And Paul is clearly saying here that it does. His conclusion in verse number 20 is that they are without excuse. How can he say that? If we're all honest with ourselves this morning, aren't we all asking that question? How can he say that? Well, he bases that conclusion on the fact that what can be known about God is known about God. That's what verse 19 says. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Paul is saying that the knowledge is there. Enough knowledge is there. And he goes on to describe two sources of that information, sources that all mankind possesses, whether they're in Ohio or in the deepest, darkest uh, jungles of Africa. All men have these same two sources of information. He says the knowledge comes from within. You know, there's one little word in that verse number 19 that is very important. You ought to circle it. It's critical. That little word in. What may be known of God is manifest in them. And if you have a translation that says something else, cross it out and put in there, because that's the correct one. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. It is in every man, woman, boy, and girl, and every nation on the face of this earth, an innate understanding. God has put it there. They have a witness that is within. There's another little word that's important there. You might want to circle it. It's a little word, is. Is. That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. It is manifest in them. You know, there's, there's just no way around this verse. It's teaching that the knowledge is there, not that it might be. What can be known about God is known about God. When God created man, he placed within man an innate knowledge of himself. And that only really makes sense. Certainly we saw it in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had a perfect understanding of God. When they were created, they knew there was a God. 
They walked with him in the garden. They talked with him in the garden. They had a relationship. That inner understanding that God put within them didn't leave with sin. It remains in all of us. And in every culture and in every land and in every part of this earth, people have an innate understanding of God. Every once in a while you'll read where some, uh, some group has been discovered that uh, we didn't even know was there, some tribe or something. And they might not understand God the way we do, but they have some understanding of a God. It's in them, that innate thing. One man said, such everywhere is the theism of Scripture. It maintains, or rather it states as certainty, that man's knowledge of God began with his being as man. And so there is a witness within. There is also, Paul says here, that knowledge that comes from without. From without. We see it all around us in every bird, in every animal, in every tree, in every star, in every cloud, in every mountain, in every rock. We see it everywhere. In all of creation, every molecule. The understanding is bolstered by what we see in creation. We're not limited to just this inner voice, this inner consciousness or conscience, which tells us somehow there is something more, that there is a God. But God has also revealed himself in creation, and it literally screams to us the reality of him. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. And I know these are hard truths. And I know these are deep truths. Entire libraries have been written of of literature, written by men and women trying to get their minds around these truths. And I do not pretend for a moment that in one sermon we can get a complete understanding of these things. But here's what I do believe. I believe the Bible is the Word of God. And I believe the words of the Apostle Paul are the inspired Word of God. And what these words teach us in these two verses are that is that is that people are without excuse because they have the knowledge within and they have the knowledge without that is sufficient to draw them to their need to God. They are not without excuse because they've rejected Christ, because this kind of revelation Paul's referring to here and theologians would call this natural revelation. This kind can't tell them about Christ. They need the Bible for that. They need the gospel for that. But they are without excuse because they have rejected the level of knowledge that they did have. Let me just read a couple of quotes on this and see if maybe it makes it more clear. Walvard says this. He says, God is revealed in nature. Not the truth of salvation through and in Christ, but the truth that God is and that he is great and real. Basically, Paul is teaching here that even apart from the knowledge of God contained in the Scriptures, God has revealed Himself in nature, and that mankind ignores or suppresses that knowledge by choice. They are therefore without excuse because they won't respond to the revelation God has given. Their condemnation is based not on the rejecting Christ of whom they have not heard, but on their sinning against the light that they have. And so Paul's conclusion is perfectly just. In verse number 20, they are without excuse. And so is God angry? Yes. Why is God angry? He's angry because his truth is suppressed and because his revelation is ignored. There's a third reason why God is angry. It's in verses 21 through 23. He's angry because his glory is perverted. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. 
but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. In the movie Gladiator, Russell Crowe plays a Roman general who has become a gladiator. There are several scenes in that particular film where we see him reach into his pocket and pull out a little bag. And he opens up the little bag and he takes out a couple of little carved images and he sets them in front of them and prays to them. What would possess a human being to think that a little thing that you carry around, a little block of wood like a Christmas tree ornament in your pocket that you carry with you is something you would pray to? How does humanity get to that place? I don't understand that. In the Old Testament, we read of the Philistine god, little g, Dagon. Remember Dagon? Dagon was a fish god. The Philistines had decided to make an image of a fish, and they worshipped it. Now, I have a pond in my backyard, and I have yanked many a largemouth bass out of that pond and many a bluegill. And I can confess to you that there's never been a time I watched one of those wriggling on the end of my line that I thought that might be God. <laughs> How does that happen? How does the human mind get there? Clearly, these people thought it. How is it possible? Flip over with me to a passage. I, I want to read you a passage, and bear with me. This is a little bit long, but I think it'll help. Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. And let's read, starting in verse number 9. Isaiah 44, verse number 9. Those who make an image, all of them are useless, and their precious things shall not profit. They are their own witnesses. They neither see nor know that they may be ashamed. Who would form a god or mold an image that profits him nothing? Surely all his companions would be ashamed, and the workmen, they are mere men. Let them all be gathered together. Let them stand up. Yet they shall fear. They shall be ashamed together. The blacksmith with the tongs works one in the coals, fashions it with hammers, and works it with the strength of his arms. Even so, he is hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The craftsman stretches out his rule. He marks one out with chalk. He fashions it with a plane. He marks it out with the compass and makes it like the figure of a man, according to the beauty of a man, that it may remain in the house. He cuts down cedars for himself and takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for man to burn, for he will take some of it and warm himself. Yes, he kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it a carved image and falls down to it. He burns half of it in the fire. With this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast and is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it and prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see and their hearts so that they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside. And he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? To a clear mind, it seems ludicrous, does it not, that someone would think that way. 
That someone would think I could take this piece of wood and part of it I could make into a tool, part of it I could make into, into, a, into, into fuel, and the other part I'm going to worship as a god. It, it just seems absurd. How did it happen? Well, this craziness did not happen overnight. It was and is the end result of a progression. And Paul says here that it started with the fact they chose to suppress what they knew about God. And then when they suppressed the truth, they ignored his revelation. And then eventually it led to this perversion of his glory. One led to the other in an inexorable downward slide. Verse 21, he said it led to futile thoughts. They became futile in their thoughts, literally worthless, purposeless in their thoughts. Paul said the same thing in Ephesians 4:17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. It led to foolish hearts. Also, verse 21, their foolish hearts were darkened. Literally, they became morally senseless. Ephesians 4.18 says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Walvert, in commenting on this, said, when truth is rejected, in time the ability to recognize and to receive truth is impaired. And that's what he's talking about here. They rejected truth. And eventually they couldn't receive truth. Every once in a while I come across somebody who uh, is considering the claims of Christ, thinking about being saved. And their response is, I'll think about it some more. I'll deal with it tomorrow. And I always think of these kinds of thoughts at the time because you won't think of it tomorrow. If you reject it today, you will not want it more tomorrow. The ability to understand is better right now than it will ever be. Because once you reject truth, the ability to receive it in the future is impaired. One man said, when the true source of wisdom is rejected, and the true source of wisdom is the fear of God, according to Psalm 111 and verse 10, people's claim to be wise is an idle boast. Progressively, they become fools. The Greek word here is emeranthasan, literally, which means they became stupid. It's a reality demonstrated by the worship as gods of idols in the forms of people and animals. The ultimate irony in humanity's refusal to glorify the true God is the insanity or stupidity of idolatry described in Isaiah 44, which we just read. Man's refusal to acknowledge and glorify God leads to a downward path. First, worthless thinking, next, moral insensitivity, and then religious stupidity seen in idol worship. Do you not read the news? And throw up your hands sometimes and say, what is going on? How is it possible that mankind is this stupid? Do you not think sometimes that the inmates are running the asylum? And as a matter of fact, not even sometimes anymore. We've got to take that word out. It's all the time now. What is going on? Insanity seems to be what is running the show. There's no such thing as wisdom or common sense. And every statement from some of our rulers seems stupider than the one we heard before. How is it possible? Let me give you a contemporary example, and, and, and believe me, I do not mean to offend any of you politically. I don't like to talk about politics, and I'm really not talking about politics here. I cannot make this example without certain political inferences being made, but that's not my point. I want you to see this, how it applies to what's being said here by Paul. You know, in just the last few days, 21 Christians were martyred by Islamic extremists. As, these, as the knives were descending on the necks of these believers, they were whispering over and over and over again the names, the name of Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. 
Their murderers were screaming the name of their false god. Wicked, false god, Allah. There's absolutely no question in any thinking person's mind as to what this crime was. And yet the people that are in leadership in our country decided it had nothing to do with religion and it had everything to do with we need to give jobs to these poor downtrodden Islamists. And regardless of what you think of politics or the people, I have to ask myself, how in the world is anybody that stupid? How could anybody make that kind of a conclusion? How did someone who's made in the image of God, someone who has the same capacity for thought that God created every every one of the rest of us with, how did that level of degeneration occur to where they actually think that way? How is it possible? Well, Paul answers it right here. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. They became futile in their thoughts, And their foolish hearts were darkened. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Is God angry? The answer is a clear and resounding yes. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why is God angry? The answer is also clear. Three reasons. Man has suppressed the truth. Man has ignored the revelation. And man has perverted the glory of God. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the rest of this passage. We, I had initially thought we would cover this whole thing today, but there's just too much, and so we're going to save that for the next week. Uh, I encourage you to read the rest of it, and you'll see the progression continues, and we'll talk about it more. But I want to conclude this morning with one final question, because I would imagine that probably some of you here this morning are thinking this question. The wrath of God is revealed, okay? What is the wrath of God? What is it? What does it mean that God is angry? Is God, like so many of us, a being who cannot control his temper? Is he like the rotten little toddler who throws herself on the floor and kicks and screams and carries on because she doesn't get her way? Is that the wrath of God? We read increasing accounts of road rage these days. We read of people who are driving down the road and somebody next to them flips them off or gives them a look. Or maybe cuts them off in traffic. And then you read a headline in the news that says, Snap! Somebody flipped out and had an absolute temper tantrum. Is that what God's wrath is? No. There are two main words that are used in our New Testament to describe wrath, translated wrath. One is the Greek word thumos, which means to rush along fiercely. It means to be in a heat of violence or to breathe violently. From that one, we would get the idea of panting rage. Just, you know, just what we would expect road rage to be. Somebody who snaps. There's another word. It's the word orge, and it means to grow ripe for something. It portrays wrath as something that builds up over a long period of time, like as voice says, like water collecting behind a great dam. In almost every instance of a New Testament writer tackling the topic of God's wrath, that is the word that is used. Orge, not thumos. God's not having a temper tantrum. God is not losing control. He's not panting with rage. Rather, what Paul is saying here is that his patience 
is slowly wearing. And that the dam, the water behind the dam, is slowly rising. We find this understanding of the wrath of God in Romans. In this letter, Paul refers to wrath ten times. But in each instance, he uses the word orge. And his point is not that God is suddenly flailing out in some petulant flash of rage. He's rather talking about the fact that God's firm, fearsome hatred of all wickedness is building up. And it will one day result in the eternal condemnation of all who are not justified by Christ's righteousness. Romans 1.17 says that the just shall live by faith. But those who do not live by faith will not live. They will perish. And so in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5, Paul says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you see how this applies to us this morning? Do you see how it applies to us? I could stand here and preach to you this morning about all the good things of the gospel. I could stand here and preach to you how you ought to be saved because it will change your life. And that would be true. I could stand here and say, as Bill Bright did in his Four Spiritual Laws, that God has a wonderful plan for your life. And it would be true. I could tell you all the benefits of Christianity and encourage you to embrace them. I could say that even if I had, uh, if, if there was no heaven, if, if all that was was this life, from what I know of the Christian life, I would still choose it. I could say things like that, positive things. They would all be true. I could tell you that all of the problems, so many of the difficulties and trials that people have in life, the pains and the sufferings, Christianity can solve those things. I could say all that. They would all be true. But none of them would be the ultimate reason why you need to turn your life over to Christ. None of them would speak to the real motivation of why you need to be born again, why you need to be saved, why you need to be converted. No, the Word of God says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Dark truth. I know it's dark truth, but it is truth. And remember that we are only in chapter 1 of Romans. The Apostle Paul is telling us he is unfolding the, the, the truth of the gospel, and he has so much more to say. We're going to learn that the story does not end here. We're going to learn that God loves us too much to let it end here. His wrath must be satisfied. But his wrath was satisfied. By the death of his son on the cross of Calvary. And he's going to unfold all that truth. All the truth of the gospel in this letter. He's going to remind us over and over that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. And that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We'll see it. But he won't stop there. He'll also remind us that the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. He'll also remind us that God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so the wrath of God is real and it must be satisfied. And you could either accept the gift of salvation that Christ offers that satisfies that wrath or you can face it by yourself. The decision is yours.